Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Out of the dozens of podcasts dedicated to aviation, you've come to the one that matters the most. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza, and we're glad you've joined us. We're going to have an interesting chat with aviation lawyer Mark Dombroff in just a few minutes, but not before we cover off a few top news items. Chris, please take the controls. Aye, aye, Captain. Uh, let's go. First up, let's talk money and profits. We like that. Delta reported third quarter results last week. By the time this show goes on the air, other major U.S. airlines will likely have done the same. The headline, Delta posted their first quarterly pre-tax adjusted profits since the beginning of the pandemic. Ben, uh, what were the nuggets you gleaned from their call? Well, I was a little surprised that they actually posted a profit for the quarter, but it was good news on both the cost and revenue side for Delta. They reported better cost performance than people were expecting of them, which um, I take is probably really good discipline by the company during COVID to be watching lots of expenses. And also, they did better in revenue than people were expecting. And I think that was a little bit stronger domestic business travel than people were expecting. Obviously, they've carried lots of leisure traffic, just like the whole industry carried. And everybody knows that seasonally, businesses travel more in the fall than in the summer. But there wasn't the sense that there was this big pickup in business. And Delta clearly said that their business isn't all back and they're not at the business levels that they would have hoped to have had or that they had pre-pandemic, but they had more than people were expecting. So with a good guy on the revenue side and a better than expected performance on the cost side, they eked out a little profit this quarter. So all I can say is kudos to Delta for running a really good shop in a difficult time. Yeah, I think they said business traffic was close to 50% of what um, their comparison was from 2019 or whatever their comparison they were using, but it was something like close to 50%. And they also talked about a revenue premium on leisure, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise as well. So, and then Ed Bastin kind of doubled down and said, we're not going to go there with vaccine mandates. Um, we're at 90% of our employees right now with our, with our policies and incentives and disincentives, and we're going to hang tight on that. So uh, that uh, reinforced that message as well. Yeah, you're right about that. And going to those couple of points, I think one of the reasons that they had strength on the leisure side revenue is from a lot of what they got from their merger long ago with Northwest. There was some of the bigger destinations this summer were places in Montana 
and Utah and, and the, you know, the upper Midwest and things like that, all of which Delta serves extremely well from their hub in Minneapolis, which they got from Northwest, right? And, um, and my guess is that those markets in terms of the people who can afford the real estate there and were relocating there from places like New York and Boston and others were probably a different kind of leisure traveler than just the families who go to Disney World or go to South Florida for the beaches or things like that. On the vaccine thing, the thing that makes me wonder, Chris, is the other airlines that have, other than United, that have put in the vaccine mandate have all sort of mentioned the fact that because they participate in the craft program, the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, they are considered a government contractor. And since there's a government mandate that contractors must be vaccinated to do business with the government. I'm wondering whether Delta will be able to say we're not going to do a mandate, but stay in the craft program, or if the government's just going to let them go as they are, or if they're going to say, look at Delta, if you want to stay in craft, you have to mandate this. They can state really good stats because of the way they've done things. So maybe they'll, maybe the government will never ask them that, or maybe they'll just get exempted even if they do. Right. I think, uh, Ed Bastian said that that they should be to like ninety five percent of the workforce by by mid November or late November. So they feel pretty confident they can meet the expectations of the mandate without enforcing a mandate. If that makes sense. Yeah, because I think my sense is I don't know if five percent is the right number, but a mandate's never going to get one hundred percent because of known and accepted exceptions that are allowed. So my guess is 95% is probably as good a number as anyone would get even with a mandate. Yep. Second up, I hate to pick on them again, but we need to talk briefly about Southwest Airlines. Uh, Their operation got better throughout the week after that really horrible weekend the week before, but they were still struggling a bit through this past week. Ben, anything you can read between the lines or you picked up on the airline industry grapevine? You know, Chris, the biggest sort of rumor there is that a lot of Southwest's problems were as a result of their mandating the vaccine and pilots walking out in protest and things like that. The company has vehemently denied that and said that's not happening. The leadership of Southwest pilots went on TV and also really denied that, said, no, this has nothing to do with the vaccine. He went on to sort of say there were things the company needed to do better and that they felt the company had overscheduled a bit and didn't create enough flexibility within the schedule to recover from mistakes. And that person that I saw on TV from Southwest Pilots Group basically blamed the management of the company for managing this into a disaster because of they didn't put everything together well enough. But even that person sort of said, this has nothing to do with the vaccines and nothing to do with that. So my guess is that people who don't like vaccine mandates tried to push that rumor, but it's probably not true. And like we said a podcast or two ago, a lot of these um, problems at Southwest, just like they were at Spirit earlier, were really self-inflicted. 
in terms of airlines that had put out a lot of capacity, but maybe had lined up um, what their workforce really looked like in terms of their ability to fulfill all of those flights. And it seems to me that has been the issue at Southwest over the last couple of weeks. And any talks of anything else probably was just maybe people trying to stir up a political agenda. I uh, saw Linda Rutherford, who was our guest a couple weeks ago, the the EVP at Southwest at a PR industry conference uh, on Thursday this past week. And I was pleased to see that she was able to get out of the office and get away at the end of the day and uh, join us for an adult beverage at the end of the day after what I'm sure has been a long week. So I didn't press her a, a lot on this. We mostly, it was mostly a social event, but clearly they've had a tough week and um, they have their reputation to lean on with regard to being very transparent with both their employees and the public. And so I'm hopeful that they just work their way out of this pretty quickly, but I think they've got some work to do, like you said. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And they're a good company. They'll get out of this. They'll figure it out. And ultimately, they're not going to be IAG and blame their pilots on why they can't do something. (laughs) And so I think they'll all end up working together just as they always have. I think you can count on that. Well, TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and cost savings in this critical function. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, along with an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So Ben, one of the chimes rules of PR my team knows I like to say is, let's not go back to the scene of the crime. Always try to move the story forward. But our friends at Boeing can't seem to shake their production woes and keep looking backwards, I guess. A new defect was identified in the 787 Dreamliner last week. Some weaker-than-expected titanium parts on aircraft already in service. And then a former Boeing test pilot was indicted by a federal grand jury in Texas last week for his role in deceiving U.S. regulators about flight controls on the 737 MAX. What's your take? Well, I would say allegedly deceiving U.S. regulators, yeah. right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's not been a good week or two for Boeing. That's exactly right. You know, some of the things like the defect identified in the 787 and things like that, if Boeing hadn't had the last couple of years like they've had, that may or may not have made the news because airplanes come up with things like this every once in a while when either an airline finds them or Boeing finds them or Airbus finds them and they become what's known as an AD and airworthiness directive. But my sense is that if you find Sharpie marker on the sideline near a window on your Boeing airplane, 
that could become a news story now, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so some of it, I'm not saying that it isn't a problem, but so I'm not sure all of this is as big. I think the the Boeing test pilot indicted for this, you know, alleged deceiving regulators is a big story though. It's a big story because it gets to whether there were shortcuts in the certification of that airplane, meaning whether Boeing did its job as well as it could have and did the FAA do their job as good as they could have to ensure that once the plane was certified, it was truly safe to fly and passengers would be safe. And if it proves to be true through the court system that this test pilot lied to the FAA, then it looks like the problem with the certification might have been much more within Boeing rather than the FAA doing something wrong. And everything I said is just all very speculative, right? Because they're going to have to go through this thing. But when you see that somebody who spoke to uh, the FAA from Boeing is indicted for saying they were they lied to the FAA in order to expedite the certification or not cause more questions for the certification. I think that raised a lot of eyebrows, and the result of that I think is going to have long-term implications about the role of how regulators work with companies like Boeing and how planes ultimately get certified. I think that's a real interesting case there. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. I don't think it was a surprise that this indictment came down. It had been talked about for a while. I guess the issue is, you know, the government's going to put on a vigorous case to convict. And I'm assuming that the test pilot's attorneys are going to put on a vigorous defense of their client. And so consequently, in that process, lots of information is going to come out, lots of finger pointing back and forth. And again, it just gets back to, I mean, we're going to go back to the scene of the crime here. And I use crime in a pejorative sense, but we're going to go back to the scene here and reopen this issue and have more information come out that, you know, I think Boeing would like to move on from. And finally, the U.S. will open for all vaccinated international travelers starting November 8th. The travel industry was very excited about this announcement by the Biden administration last week. So are we going to see lots of foreign tourists at Rockefeller Center for Christmas and on the beaches of Florida over New Year's, Ben? Well, I hope that's the case, Chris. I'm not sure that'll be the case. There are people that I know that know this November 8th date is coming, but are still concerned about actually buying the tickets now and are going to say, is this Christmas still too soon because we're uncertain of what could change. Also, they have to be 100% clear that they can, if they're a foreign tourist coming to the U.S., they're vaccinated and they come to the U.S., to be on one of our wonderful beaches or, you know, go watch the ball drop or whatever they might do it here. They got to make sure that when they go back home, they're not probably not going to have to quarantine for 10 days or or things like that. And for some countries, that will certainly be true. For others, just because we let them here doesn't mean that they can get back home without some complication at that end. So I certainly will expect to see more people, more foreign tourists in the U.S. this holiday season than last year. But will it be a huge year for foreign tourists? I don't think so, because I think 
this change is happening sort of too close to make plans and there's still enough uncertainty around things. And especially now with the discussion of boosters, this isn't vaccine confidential, right? We're not, it's not like we're (laughs) experts on this, but just as a consumer, you know, there's talks of who gets a booster, when they might get a booster. Well, J and J people get a booster now, right? That's some of the newest talk and things like that. And so I can see people who might want to travel, might like the fact that they could come to the US because they're vaccinated after November 8th, but still think that this holiday season might be a little bit too soon for that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And there's not a lot of lift as far as where airlines have their aircraft right now through December. So uh, they've been putting more capacity into domestic routes. So, you know, perhaps the international flights will be fuller, but I don't see a situation where they're going to all of a sudden put more international lift into the schedule for December beyond immediately. You know, embedded in this was the CDC backing off of how they interpreted what fully vaccinated was, especially as it relates to international residents and international travelers, because they didn't recognize like a mix of AstraZeneca shot one and Pfizer shot two. And so they, they have now identified that as being fully vaccinated. So in the cruise sector, we saw, you know, at Carnival, we were following the CDC guidelines. We saw like an immediate reaction from our, Canadian guests, for example, who haven't been able to sail because they didn't meet the the status of being fully vaccinated. And we saw like an immediate uptick. People wanted to know, are we going to change our policy? We haven't announced anything yet. But clearly, there's some element of pent-up demand. We'll just have to see how it manifests. And supporting our view, I'll say our, because you said you agreed with me, our view <laughs> of, uh, of timing, you probably saw that United announced a number of new long-haul international destinations, some connecting hubs in the U.S. to cities they already fly, like Dusseldorf and Munich and places like that, but also five new destinations, including in the Azores, to Palma de Mallorca and Spain, Tenerife yep. and the Canary Islands and places like that. What I thought was interesting about those is those are all leisure kind of destinations and places that people would go for vacations, but they all start in May of, or June of next year. So yep. it seems like United saying, look, we're going to continue this push long haul into not just business, but leisure destinations. But we also recognize that it's going to take a while for people to get comfortable booking these kind of services. So we'll launch this stuff in six months from now. Yep. Well, we'll be right back with our discussion with Mark Dombroff. But first, a word of thanks to Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. It's my privilege now to welcome our guest for this week's show. Mark Dombroff is a partner in the law firm of Fox and Rothschild, a well-known legal expert in the field of aviation and a frequent commentator in the news media about aviation. Mark, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Chris. And Ben, I really appreciate being a guest. Well, Mark, welcome to the show. I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot, as we will. We'd like to start with a short self-introduction about who you are and what you do in the aviation sector. Great, great. I uh, 
I have been practicing law, I hesitate to say, uh, uh, five decades. Uh, I, I don't think I ever, uh, until I had to make the decision to go to law school, thought about it. Both my parents were lawyers, and I guess I sort of assumed I'd be a lawyer. But I went to law school. Um, I graduated. I went to work, uh, not because I had a unique or special interest in aviation, but because, frankly, it was the only place that offered me a job at the Federal Aviation Administration in their general counsel's office. Uh, I then moved over to the Department of Justice and spent almost 15 years there, uh, ultimately as the director of, I'll call it all things aviation, uh, at the Department of Justice, and then left to enter private practice. And ever since entering private practice, uh, I have represented and my team have represented uh, all aspects of the industry, from airlines to airports, manufacturers, cargo operators, uh, the, the full spectrum. Uh, and we do things, anything from uh, catastrophe matters, emergency response, litigation, uh, FAA regulatory enforcement, commercial, contractual, any type of legal service that the aviation industry might require. So, Mark, uh, we're going to first talk about an issue that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, and that's the issue of bad passenger behavior that's really heightened over the past two years. First off, why do you think we're seeing the number of incidents that we are now? And do you think it's worse on airplanes than in other places? There have been plenty of Kevin and Karen moments on social media with people behaving badly just about everywhere, but airplanes are one of them. Yeah, I think I think uh, just sort of commenting on the second aspect, why do we see more of it on airplanes? Uh, I think just anything having to do with airplanes tends to catch the media's attention. Uh, so uh, I, I think that that may be the reason. But I think ever since 9-11, uh, airline travel has, I think everybody would agree, become more stressful. Uh, we have to get to the airport earlier. We stand in line. Uh, we go through security. We may have to take our shoes off. Um, it's just become a much more stressful exercise. Um, and then all you add to that, we've had the lockdown uh, for about 18 months. Uh, people couldn't travel or wouldn't travel. Uh, now it's loosening up and we're starting to see uh, much more travel. Um, the, there aren't as many flights back yet. Uh, we have the mask mandate on airplanes that uh, was extended till January 18th. It remains to be seen, I suppose, if it gets extended further. Uh, we have, we've always had an issue that uh, of alcohol on airplanes, whether it's sold at the airport in to-go cups or it's sold on the airplanes. Uh, you put all these pieces together with people starting to travel again and the increased stress and the mask issues and the frustration uh, with the normal issues associated with airline travel, namely weather or delays and uh, factor in alcohol. And it's not at all surprising in many respects, disappointing, but not at all surprising that we're seeing these types of events on the airplane. Uh, people Again, uh, the whole issue of COVID and vaccinations and masks have become terribly politicized. People want to exercise their personal freedoms, uh, but it's mandated they wear masks and you introduce uh, that frustration, that additional stress, and we see the results uh, 
being reported in the news and on social media. Well, I think that's right. All right, Mark. And um, I was flying this weekend. And even when one passenger had their mask over their mouth, but not their nose, passengers around them kept saying, please cover your nose, please cover your nose. And thankfully, that didn't escalate into anything. But I thought that was very interesting. I don't think I would have seen that a year ago. I, I agree, Ben. I um, I also was traveling this past week. I went to Las Vegas and uh, for the National Business Aviation Association uh, convention and exhibition. And I've sort of uh, uh, started asking flight attendants on every flight I've taken uh, what their experience has been with the disruptive or unruly passengers. And I would say virtually every flight attendant that I've asked this question of on flights that I've been on have indicated that they have had an experience where the people are, generally they're not in, in the situation where somebody's being dragged off the airplane by the police or being duct taped to their seat. But I would say almost to a flight attendant, they have told me that they have experienced much ruder, much more aggressive responses. And typically what triggers it is the request from the flight attendant to put the mask on or put the mask on properly. And I, it's very disappointing because it's the last place on earth you want to have a disruption is on an airplane at 30,000 plus feet. I think that's exactly right. And the last thing you want to do is disrupt a flight attendant crew who are there to help everyone in case anything goes wrong. So it gets to the next question. In your mind, what are the safety implications of this kind of situation, Mark? Look, I, I think they're significant, Ben. Um, you know, we've all seen the videos. I think maybe it's a good development. Maybe it's not a good development. But everybody on the airplane is a cinematographer. So, you know, you no longer have to rely upon what somebody says they saw because all these events are being taped uh, on our iPhones. Flight attendants are there for safety. It is a violation, a criminal violation of federal law to interfere with a flight attendant or a crew member uh, in the performance of their responsibilities. Ever since 9-11, uh, the cockpit crew, the pilot, the uh, co-pilot, uh, are behind an armored door. The door gets shut uh, at the time of uh, departure. And unless they use the restroom and then the aisle is blocked with a catering cart, uh, the door does not get opened until they've arrived. Uh, frankly, if there's a disruption in the cabin, I want that flight crew to stay on the flight deck. I don't want them coming out. Their job is to fly the airplane. So the flight attendants are left to deal with the issue. And if we look at some of these videos, not only do we see one, for example, where a flight attendant gets punched in the face and loses two teeth, but we see passengers assisting the flight attendants in restraining these unruly passengers. And so the possibility exists of, of passengers being injured as well. And then you add to that the fact that what if something happens? What if an emergency? What if they have to, you know, the airplane may have to make an emergency landing or divert because of what's going on in the back? Uh, the flight attendants are not there uh, to, to be law enforcement surrogates. And in many respects, it's wholly unfair to put the flight attendants in that position. 
But they are, in fact, the, if you will, the pointy tip of the spear under those circumstances. Mark, you've been advocating a five-point plan to get, I don't want to say more aggressive, but be more impactful as it relates to managing uh, in-flight disruptions. And it involves both government and industry. Can you talk to us about that plan? Sure. I am a huge believer in the fact that the FAA has simply not done enough. The FAA has talked about the zero tolerance policy, but all they've done is talk about it. Uh, The White House has said that the Department of Justice should become more active. But so far, at least from certainly anything I've seen or heard about, that's all they've done is talk about it. Nothing affirmative, uh, proactive has been done. I do believe in a five-step program. The first is when the FAA issues a press release that announces the proposed civil penalty against a passenger, uh, they should name, they should identify the passenger. Uh, I read in one of the press releases or in one of the press accounts that it was the FAA's position. It was not their policy to name the, uh, the passenger. I find that somewhat disingenuous. And the reason I find it disingenuous, Chris, is when they, they impose a penalty, a proposed penalty against a corporation, they always name the corporation, whether it's an airline or a manufacturer. And, and I think the issuance of press releases is an integral part of the FAA's enforcement program. They ought to be naming the passengers. Um, and if somebody wants to say that's uh, uh, not fair, uh, I, I frankly don't think that has any basis at all. The, the, the fact is they should be using uh, public exposure of these people uh, to their friends, their family, their co-workers uh, through the press releases. Uh, second, they shouldn't settle these cases for pennies on the dollar. Uh, we hear about the proposed penalty, and typically we don't hear anything else after that. We don't hear what the resolution is. But the FAA will settle cases. They do settle cases. And I'm okay with them settling cases. But the fact is they, they should not settle these cases for pennies on the dollar. They ought to hold out, quite frankly, for the full amount. Third is, these should be federal prosecutions, and they are typically not. It's a violation of federal law to interfere with the flight crew and the performance of its responsibilities, and that is exactly what is happening. These people ought to be arrested by, whether it's the local police, whether it's the uh, uh, sheriff's department, the airport police, and then turned over to the U.S. Marshal and arraigned in a federal courthouse, prosecuted by a United, an assistant United States attorney. Um, these should not be left up to local authorities. Uh, fourth, there ought to be a federal no-fly list. There is no federal no-fly list. Each airline is being left to its own devices with respect to its own no-fly list. Delta Airlines has recommended that the airlines share no-fly lists because What's to stop the passenger from going uh, to a different airline? Frankly, there ought to be a federal no-fly list. And if it was up to me, once you're on it, you don't get off it. Um, uh, you get to drive to Disney World while your family gets to fly. And then finally, there should be a vehicle through penalties imposed by the FAA for an airline to establish the monetary loss that it suffered due to that disruptive passenger. Increased fuel costs, costs of diversion, overnight costs, cancellation costs, refund costs. 
the airlines shouldn't have to deal with this. I think if if these five steps were put in place, we actually would see a decrease in this disruptive behavior. Mark, we've been talking about disruptive customers, so let's do one more here. Your clients are often airlines. How much time have you and your team spent involved in litigation about passenger disruption? Uh, Do you think there's much of an appetite for some of this? <laughs> you know, the airlines, and this is the problem, is the airlines have been left to their own devices um, to try to figure it out. And some commentators have suggested that the flight attendants should get more training in the de-escalation of these situations. Well, that's not the answer. By the time they have to de-escalate, the situation has presented itself. And these aren't all going to go away, but I do think most of them will go away if, if the sort of the steps that I've been advocating are taken. Um, I am not aware, and I'm just trying to think, other than the criminal prosecution of the passenger who punched the flight attendant in the face um, and, and a couple of other, and I think they were state prosecutions, of any airline that has really pursued something against one of its passengers. The airlines at the end of the day want to get everybody where they want to go on time, on schedule, and with no disruptions, whether or otherwise. And I, I have to believe, uh, having represented the industry for as long as I have, that they're very reluctant to turn around and take an adversarial position vis-a-vis -vis their own passenger. It doesn't mean that the flight attendant who who is injured or the passenger who is injured in assisting the flight attendant isn't going to proceed against the passenger, the unruly passenger. But the airlines, I can certainly understand why they don't want to enter the fray. Um, so I don't really fault them on that at all. I do fault the FAA. Well, Mark, I tend to agree with you. I mean, look, if somebody sticks up a bank or a Best Buy or a gas station, the the retailers shouldn't be obligated to pursue legal action. It's up to law enforcement to do that. And I think it's the same lesson here in the country. Well, uh, you know, Chris, law. Chris, picking up your point, you're exactly right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the FAA had a conference call, as I recall, or a hearing. There were hearings um, and the airlines were invited. And the FAA said that they wanted to hear from the airlines in a week regarding uh, what they were going to do. Well, that's not right. It's, it's, it's like saying to the victims of crime, uh, we want to hear from you, the police saying, we want to hear from you in a week or two weeks as to what you're going to do to prevent this from occurring in the future. Um, I, I think the accountability here um, is running in the wrong direction. Um, the airlines are in the business of transporting people from point A to point B. And the FAA has more than enough tools, the Department of Justice, the TSA, the Homeland Security. There's more than enough tools out there to really put some teeth into, into preventing this from occurring, or at least cutting it down rather significantly. Most of the airlines have stopped serving alcohol. I found it rather extraordinary that even after the administrator sends a letter to uh, airports saying, uh, please uh, encourage or please make sure whatever they can do, make sure your tenants, restaurants and bars don't provide to-go cups for alcohol. Um, and what I found so extraordinary is about two weeks after that was sent, I was coming through St. Louis uh, Airport, Lambert Field, 
and there was one of the restaurants there had a big banner sign outside its restaurant saying to go cups, uh, <laughs> all alcoholic drinks, something to that effect. And I have a picture of it. This is two weeks after the administrator says, please have your restaurants, your bars, whatever, um, not serve to go cups. So people were carrying them on the airplane. And this is typically all inside security. But I, I, it's just, I think it's very frustrating that not, the federal government, which is the regulator, has not stepped up. So, Mark, let's switch it up a bit. Uh, you spent much of your career defending airlines and many complicated legal matters, most notably after accidents and other aircraft-related incidents. And I should say, defending airlines once you left the FAA. What has changed the most about this world of aviation litigation since you uh, went into private practice? I, it's a great question. And I think the change is uh, for the better. Uh, the last catastrophic airline disaster that we had in the United States was in 2009. Uh, and while there's certainly, you know, we've had uh, at least one passenger lose her life um, uh, and, and by any measure from perspective of that family and in the airline, it was a catastrophic event. It did not involve an actual accident um, in which uh, other people uh, perished. Uh, we have the safest airline system in the world in this country. And I would say that it's a combination of efforts by the FAA, uh, by the airlines, by manufacturers. Um, and we have uh, extraordinarily safe airline operations. And I would say that is the single biggest change I've seen. There was a time uh, when I started, I, I had my own firm for just about 20 years. And when I started my firm, Chris, um, I, we, our office was handling at the same time, uh, two and then three catastrophic airline disasters. Um, and and uh, those, those days of of catastrophic airline disasters, fingers crossed, knock on wood and so forth, um, are gone in the United States. Not true, obviously, and I'm not commenting on what's taking place outside the United States with the non-U.S. airlines, but uh, certainly the U.S. airline industry is, it's, to say it's the safest in the world is something of an understatement in, in my view. It is an extraordinary, um, uh, example of what can be done when everybody works together. And I think the lessons, the systems, the philosophies are being carried over now very proactively into a lot of other industries, including the autonomous vehicle, you know, uh, area that, that's under development, um, into the, the drone industry, the railroad industry, the pipeline industry, um, all of them. Um, and, and I think aviation presents the model. Well, Mark, as a follow-up to that, what have the 737 MAX crashes taught us about the way airplanes should be certified as safe to fly? I, I think, obviously, that has riveted everybody's attention. The Lion Air accident, the Ethiopian Airlines accident. Uh, I, I think that the focus has been on the whole certification system. I think, unfortunately, the FAA's credibility on a global basis vis-a-vis -vis certification has had uh, some negative uh, uh, impacts on it. And other nations are saying, 
even though we have bilateral agreements by which they uh, historically have accepted our certification of, of an aircraft, uh, they're no longer relying upon them exclusively. Uh, I think the fundamental uh, certification system is good. I think it's stellar. I think it's, uh, frankly, the best in the world, um, the FAA system, that is. It doesn't mean that systems can't be made better. Uh, throughout the world, uh, regulatory authorities have to rely upon manufacturers. There's no question about it. Uh, they have neither the expertise that the manufacturer has, nor do they have the personnel and resources. It really becomes an issue of what's the relationship between a particular manufacturer and the regulatory authority. So if one wants to criticize what transpired vis-a-vis -vis the 737 MAX, I think it's more a function of focusing on that specific relationship between the FAA people involved and the Boeing people involved and not indicting, if you will, the entire certification scheme and structure. And I think in large measure, uh, there's been too much focus on the overall structure and not enough acknowledgement uh, that it's much more focused, much more narrow than the FAA regulatory structure. So let's take the aircraft from 35,000 to 40,000 feet in a bigger macro topic, Mark. What are your thoughts on the changing labor situation and the labor shortage in the U.S.? And how do you think that's going to impact airline operations and safety concerns? Yeah, you know, the, the problem is if we go pre-COVID, Chris, we had a shortage of pilots um, ever since uh, 2009, uh, the Continental 3407 Colgan Air accident and the change to 1,500 hours uh, for the first officer, the right seat, we started getting a pilot shortage uh, because the, the, the airlines just couldn't get enough pilots. You had a 1,500 hour requirement. They would pull them out of regional carriers. The regional carriers were looking to fill the seats. Then you had COVID and airlines uh, either laid off or the, the retirements uh, increased dramatically. Um, and we had plenty of pilots. And in fact, there were plenty of airplanes. And I think it parted accounts for some of the startup airlines that uh, started up during COVID. Now the airlines are back. They sort of start their operations, bringing back routes, bringing back planes, but it's not as easy to bring back pilots. So we're moving into something of a shortage again. You sort of compound that with some of the issues involving COVID um, and, and whether or not pilots are, are able to return and so forth. And I think we're somewhat back in uh, potentially a shortage situation or an actual pilot shortage situation. Probably, you know, as we sit here talking at about the worst possible time with the holidays coming up um, and the stress we talked about. And uh, so I, I think that it is, it is a a problem. And unfortunately, I think it's going to become somewhat worse. Well, Mark, while this wasn't in the commercial sector, what are your thoughts about the Vanessa Bryant lawsuit against the L.A. County Sheriff's Office over the release of photos of the Kobe Bryant crash site? That, that's a really good question. Um, and, and I think that we really have to focus on the fact that we're not talking about 
the liability issues associated with the accident. As I understand it, all of that has been resolved and settled. What we're focused on, as you point out, Ben, is the release of uh, or the alleged release of photographs by the L.A. Sheriff's Department uh, of photographs of the scene. And the lawsuit brought by the Bryant family against the L.A. Sheriff claiming uh, invasion of privacy and emotional distress as a result of that. Not a physical injury uh, per se, but emotional distress. And uh, the, the recently there's been uh, a lot of articles, sort of follow-up articles to the lawsuit in which the uh, Bryant family, through their attorney, has expressed concern and perhaps even somewhat outrage about the fact that the uh, county, as the defendant, wants to have what's called an independent medical examination, I guess of Mrs. Bryant and perhaps some of the children, but I know of Mrs. Bryant. And the, the position is that uh, since the claim is for extreme emotional distress, which is a psychological injury, um, it could manifest itself physically as well, but it's a psychological injury, they should be entitled to an independent medical examination in order to establish its presence or non-presence or cause or whatever. Their assertion, the sheriff's department assertion, L.A. County's assertion, being that any emotional distress was caused by the accident and the loss of her husband and not is, is not attributable to the release of the photographs. Now, without commenting at all on whether the photographs were released, weren't released, the propriety of it, the invasion of privacy issues, but simply commenting upon this question of the independent medical examination. And while it may not be a popular position, when a plaintiff puts their psychological condition into question by claiming things like extreme emotional distress, it would be ordinary and customary for the defendant to be able to have an independent medical examination of that individual. It's no different than if I claim a physical injury and, and uh, I'm suing for that, the defendant is entitled to an independent medical examination to determine the nature and extent of the injury or the disability or whatever. And I, it's really that which the uh, uh, plaintiff, the, the Bryant family and Bryant attorney is complaining about. And, you know, when you strip away sort of all the emotion, the fact is, I think uh, the law allows it. And I actually read something to the effect that even the Bryant lawyer indicates there's got to be a less intrusive means of doing it. Well, I think that's almost an implicit acknowledgement that the defendant is entitled to explore the claim. They just don't like the idea of an independent medical examination. Um, but again, I, I don't see uh, if a plaintiff is going to put their psychological condition, um, you know, frequently it's post-traumatic stress disorder is, is uh, raised as as a claim for damages, if they're going to put their psychological condition in question and want to recover based upon it, money based upon it, uh, I, an independent medical examination, whether it's a psychological examination or an MD, a physical examination, in this case, it'd be a psychological examination, I think is proper.
See, I looked at this a little bit differently, Mark. I saw uh, that response as an admission by the sheriff's office that they released the photos. And so they wanted to know, is it, did it really cause harm? So, um, you know, I realize there's probably three sides to this coin, but, um, and they're certainly uh, allowed to defend themselves in the, in the litigation. But um, I, I just thought it kind of skirted the main issue of, did you release these photos? Well, I know, I know the police, the sheriff's department has denied acknowledging, uh, denied releasing them. I think they've suggested that even if they were released, that she may not have ever seen them, but read accounts of the fact that they were released. Putting all of that aside, though, you know, all lawsuits are made up of two, in many respects, separate and distinct elements. One is liability, um, and then the other is damages. Um, and I think the focus here, separate and apart from, you know, is there liability or is there not liability? Were the photos released or not? And did it cause an injury is the question of what is that injury? And is it attributable to the event, in this case, the release of photographs? And I think under the law, the fact that uh, the sheriff's department wants to conduct or L.A. County wants to conduct an independent medical examination I don't think the court would ever see that as an acknowledgement of of liability or the fact that they did it. I think what they want to establish is that if she's suffering or the family is suffering, and I don't want to minimize anything, but if they're suffering from extreme emotional distress, it's the accident and the loss of the father, you know, father, husband, so forth. That's the cause of it. I'll tell you, if it just sort of dwelling on this for a minute. A number of years ago, um, there was a an accident in which one of the survivors sued the airline. And the claim was that they had virtually no physical injury. It was what would be loosely referred to as a walkaway case. They had virtually no physical injury. But they claimed post-traumatic stress disorder. And we requested their medical records, which we got. And we also got, including that, because uh, we indicated we wanted all doctors, including psychologists, psychiatrists, and so forth. And we got the psychologist's records. Um, and it, it was clear from the psychologist's records that uh, there was another basis for post-traumatic stress disorder, including a suicide in the family and, and uh, other issues. Um, and, and at the end of the day, uh, the jury awarded exactly the amount of money, because clearly the person was on the airplane, but exactly the amount of money that we had suggested that they award during the opening statement in the trial. Um, and it was a very difficult thing to do to confront this person on the witness stand in open court in front of a jury with some of their own history. Um, but unrelated to the accident, but it was necessary to do in order to demonstrate to the jury that if, in fact, there were such emotional distress and post-traumatic stress disorder, it uh, could be just as easily attributable, if not wholly attributable, to other events having nothing to do with the accident. And obviously there, I think the jury agreed. But it's, uh, uh, it's a very sticky issue. So as we wind up this great conversation, Mark, how about you give our listeners a window into what you think is probably one of your most favorite or interesting cases over the last few years? 
I uh, <laughs> I grew up watching uh, Perry Mason, the original Perry Mason, Raymond Burr. And I, I refer, uh, looking back over my career, to Perry Mason moments. Uh, you know, Perry Mason in, in an hour, actually less than an hour if you include commercials, uh, the crime would occur, the trial would occur, and he would unmask the true murderer in the courtroom. Um, <laughs> and in many respects, he did a disservice to the legal profession because people who grew up watching shows like that sort of assumed that's the way it's supposed to work, and it doesn't. I had a case a number of years ago involving an airline that had crashed, and the issue was focused on was the ILS system, the electronic signal that guides the airplane to the ground, uh, was it defective? The, the FAA had installed and maintained this electronic signal. It was almost like a highway that started at the end of the runway and went up at an angle into the air, and once the airplane encountered it, it would follow this highway right to the runway. And uh, the plaintiffs in the case asserted that the FAA system, they had installed it, maintained it, serviced it, flight checked it to make sure it was operating properly, was actually defective. And this particular airplane uh, encountered the signal at altitude and started flying down it towards the runway. And the signal as it's depicted to the pilot on the flight deck, tells the pilot whether he should fly up. He's, in other words, he's too low. He's below the highway. Or uh, he should fly down. Uh, he's above the highway. And if he stays on the highway, he'll go right to the point on the runway that his wheel should touch. Their assertion was that the signal was backwards. And when it told the pilot to fly up, he actually should have flied, flown down and vice versa. So he basically flew the airplane into the ground short of the runway, killing most of the people on the airplane. At the trial, the trial lasted several months in federal court. The plaintiff had an expert on this system who went through great detail explaining from the flight check recordings that the FAA had produced during their inspections, how these recordings demonstrated that the signal was backwards and, and the recordings looked like EKGs. Anybody who's had an EKG or seen an EKG, it looked just like an EKG. And the FAA airplane would fly the signal and it would record it on a uh, flight check recorder and the FAA would sign off on it as being within tolerance. And this expert testified at great length that the signal was backwards. My expert, um, walked up as their expert was testifying uh, to look at the charts and walked back to me. Jury was there um, and, and I was representing the United States. Uh, the jury's in the box. The courtroom was pretty full and sort of walks back to me and I lean over to and I said, what is going on? This is case has been going on for a number of years and this is the first I'd ever heard of this backward signal. My expert uh, whispers in my ear, he's reading it backwards. And I was stunned. I just couldn't imagine that an expert in this kind of system would read it backwards. And I, I just sat there and listened to the testimony. And then we recessed. My expert explains to me that because this, this airport is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, six months 
out of the year, the New Zealand flight check authorities check it. And six months out of the year, the FAA checks it. And much like in England, the driver sits on the right side of the car, the wheel is on the right side of the car, as opposed to in the United States where it's on the left side, the New Zealand flight check authorities reverse polarity of their recorders. So what we traditionally understand for the FAA shows up as being up in New Zealand flight check recordings, you read them in the other direction and their expert didn't know it. So when I got to examine, cross-examine this expert, it was, and I don't think I really appreciated it till after it was all over, it was sort of the ultimate Perry Mason moment in my <laughs> career. Um, it, it was extraordinary. I walked him through all of his testimony on direct examination about this reversal of the signal uh, I think the judge thought I was crazy because I allowed him to repeat it all. Um, and then I looked at him and I said, the fact is there is no reversal of the signal, is there, sir? And he insisted there was. And I said, the fact is, sir, you're reading it backwards, aren't you? And the, the courtroom just erupted. And the judge looked at me and said, you'd better have some evidence of this. I said, judge, this is a New Zealand flight check recording. They record them the exact opposite. And that gentleman over there, and I pointed to my expert, has already spoken to the New Zealand flight check authorities to confirm it, and he will testify to it. It was uh, a true Perry Mason moment. <laughs> what a fantastic story, Mark. <laughs> That's wonderful. And if anybody decides to start remaking Perry Mason, I think you should star <laughs> in the show. <laughs> I, I tell you, it was, I look back over my whole career and, and um, I can think of one other sort of similar to that. And it involved another expert for the plaintiff in that same case. But I, I consider myself now uh, as very fortunate to even be able to tell this story, having experienced it, uh, because I think most of us as lawyers go through our entire career never seeing Perry Mason moments except on Perry Mason. Um, and, and it was pretty extraordinary as I sit here many years later. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, this has been great. Um, I think our listeners are going to love this conversation. I don't know if you're going to get an invitation to the FAA holiday party after that first half of the interview, but if you're in Dallas, <laughs> if you're in Dallas, please drop by for a drink and uh, I'll treat you to a cocktail. I, so. I, you know, I've been pretty well, you know, Ben knows, I've been pretty vocal about this on, on social. I'm, you know, for better or worse, I put this stuff out on social media. And I just, I honestly fail to understand why the FAA has not acted. Zero tolerance, they've said zero tolerance, they're the right words. Right. But, you know, I don't get it. I, I These five things, you know, even if they don't do them all, I don't understand why they've not done any of them. Well, we've had some people, some listeners complain potentially about Delta saying they wanted to share the no-fly lists around the industry, and did that make sense? And we made kind of the same argument that you did. Well, if you, 
you know, if, if you ran a donut shop in a neighborhood and somebody was stealing your donuts, wouldn't the other donut shops want to know the these are the people who are out there stealing donuts? <laughs> right? They're not, it's right. Yeah, it's exactly. right. You know, we all, I'll tell you, we all have these uh, um, neighborhood watch type apps. I don't know whether they're called neighbors or whatever they're called. And people post the fact that, you know, somebody, their ring camera picked up somebody on the camera or a bike got stolen or something, you know, a package was stolen and people post their ring videos so that everybody else can see and they can be careful. Well, I don't I don't get the FAA. I really don't. I don't understand why they don't publish the names of the people. Um, well, no, exactly. I mean, we were joking, you know, think about those days at the dry cleaner when they used to post the the bounce checks in the in the yeah, it, diner, right? real, so, yes <laughs> yes so, you only do that once so. i really don't get it and i heard a former faa official who really you guys um, if i describe enough of him you'll know who it is who said the key to this is um um teaching the flight attendants better de-escalation techniques no. well I, i'm sorry no I put that, I, yeah, you can always teach them better de-escalation techniques, but I think that's the, the same concept of teaching them self-defense. Give me a break. That's good for them to have the peace of mind that they know some self-defense, but that's not the None of those are the answer. The answer is there have to be real, tangible, severe consequences. Well, I agree with that, and while I also support many of the more socially aggressive issues going on in the country, I also think that our country's skin has gotten especially thin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And the one place you do not want it is at 35,000 feet in a pressurized tube. That's not, that's not what, frankly, it's not what the flight attendants or the flight crews signed on for. They signed on to be the, the safety net, literally the safety net for the folks that, that uh, are on that airplane. And I don't want them distracted by arguing with passengers who are even have to focus on these things. And then somebody suggested, well, you know, I, I guess it's almost I, I'm not a soccer guy, but it's like handing them the yellow card or handing them a red card or you know, we know what seat you're in. Oh, come on. You know, that's all well and good, but there have to be consequences. Well, on that note, we'll say thanks to Mark Dombra for a very scintillating uh, interview. And we really appreciate your time, Mark. And to all of our Airlines Confidential listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this. Thank you, guys. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Well, after that great discussion with Mark Dombroff, it's time to take your questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177. 
or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Before we get to the questions, just a note to our listeners, uh, we greatly appreciate the questions. They've been coming in at a pretty fast and furious pace these last few weeks. So we will do our best to get to all of them, but we do have a backlog and uh, it might take us a while to get to your question, but please keep them coming. So Ben, let's start by putting you in the hot seat. We've got a question from Ryan in St. Louis. Hey guys, love the show. And I saw an article today that says Spirit is starting to reaccommodate delayed passengers on other airlines and that they never would have done this with Ben at the helm. Wondering if Ben had a rebuttal. You've had a lot of fantastic guests lately, so please keep up the great content. Thanks a lot, Ryan. (laughs) You know, actually, we did do that when I was at the helm. The thing that Spirit didn't have when I was at the helm, and I'm not sure they do now, maybe someone from Spirit will contact the show and tell us if this is true or not now. But what we didn't have were sort of deals to put people on another flight. When you and I worked at US Airways, Chris, we had deals with most other airlines that if we had to cancel a flight or seriously delay a flight, we could send our passengers to Delta or American or United. And there was sort of a behind the scene contract of if they had seats, they would carry the customer. And then at the end of the month, we'd settle on how many of our customers they carried and how many of their customers did we carry. And that was sort of a deal that was in place. When I was at Spirit, we had none of those deals, but we would still put people on other flights, other airlines. We just had to buy the tickets on those other airlines as if we were a travel agent buying tickets and often paid very high prices for those because we were buying for the flight the next day. So what I don't know is when Spirit has done this recently, if they followed the same thing they were doing when I was there, they just had so many customers they had to reaccommodate. They said, we're going to bite the bullet and pay the expense and buy seats on Delta, buy seats on American, buy seats on whoever we can to get our customers out. Or in the last few years, have they started to look more like a, a traditional airline in the U.S. with you know, agreements with other airlines in terms of how to handle these customers. So I hope that clears it up, Ryan. And I hope for Spirit's case that they have gotten some of those deals. I'm just not sure that they have. Ryan was uh, referencing a blog by Gary Leff, his uh, View from the Wing uh, blog. So uh, Gary's a fellow Fresno State grad like myself. So we'll have to uh, check with Gary and see where he got that information. And Professor Baldanza, we've got a question that flows from the reading list we published on our website, and this is from Devon in Indianapolis. I'll try to break it down because there's a couple parts to this question. Hey guys, really enjoy listening to the show every week. I recently finished reading Glory Lost and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. Great recommendation from your book list, and it reads like a sequel to another great industry read, Hard Landing by Tom Petzinger. My question isn't exactly related to Delta, but another theme from the book. Throughout the book, 
the authors make mention several times of the high fuel prices from the late 2008-9-10 era and how it affected the industry. The book seems to imply that when fuel prices increased, low-cost carriers like JetBlue, Spirit, and the former AirTran had some of their low-cost advantage get shipped away. So my questions are two. One, is this because people who fly LCCs or ULCCs tend to be more price sensitive and there's a price ceiling that people won't pay even if it's cheaper than a legacy carrier? And second, if that's the case, does that mean that high fuel prices, while bad for everyone, disadvantage LCCs more than legacy carriers? Well, this is a fascinating question, Devin. And thank you for looking at the book list that we put on our website. I'm glad that you found Glory Lost and Found from that list and really glad that you enjoyed the book. This is real interesting because people fly LCCs or ULCCs especially largely on price. I used to say, and this may not be true of the current spirit, okay, but I used to say that if the price were exactly the same, people would most often choose a Delta or a JetBlue over Spirit, but they pick Spirit because the price isn't the same. It's cheaper, and that's why they're there. And true enough, when we would survey customers and say, why do you fly Spirit? They'd always say, because your prices are so cheap, right? <laughs> and so I think it's because people who fly ULCCs are the most price-sensitive kind of customers out there. And I don't know that there's a price ceiling that they won't pay, even if it's cheaper, but airline customers notoriously have what economists call high price elasticity, meaning that when prices are higher, fewer people travel. And that's absolutely true. But to your second point, I actually think that in higher fuel prices, ULCCs and LCCs have an advantage, not a disadvantage. And let me explain that. Most ULCCs put more seats on their planes than legacy carriers. What that means is that the cost per seat is lower for them in fuel because the plane, an A320 with 150 seats, burns about the same amount of fuel as an A320 with 180 seats in it, right? Maybe a little bit more because there's more weight for those extra seats, but you're dividing that cost by a 180 versus by 150. So when fuel prices go up, every airline has to raise their fare if they want to stay profitable or want to keep whatever margin they were earning before the fuel price went up. But the low-cost carriers don't have to raise their fare as much. So what happens is the price difference between the legacies and the ULCCs tends to widen. The prices of everyone may get a little bit higher, but the price advantage of flying a ULCC tends to grow in high fuel prices. And that's why they tend to have an advantage. The other thing, and I don't mean to get too professorial here, but the other thing is the only thing in the last decades that have really disciplined capacity in the industry are fuel prices. Let me explain what I mean by that. The only time the airlines haven't had a good incentive to just put lots of seats out there, even more than the number of passengers, is when fuel prices are really high. 
Because when fuel prices are really high, if they put out seats that aren't going to get filled, that can be incredibly expensive for them. So the other advantage that ULCCs have in a high fuel price environment is it's likely that the legacy carriers won't fly as much capacity against them. So for those two reasons, I think that if you surveyed CEOs of ULCCs around the world, they'd say, we actually like higher fuel prices because our business uh, the value proposition of our business is stronger when prices are higher. So ULCCs come out on top every time. <laughs> well, not <laughs> every time, not like on JD Power Awards or things like that, but, <laughs> but economically in lots of ways. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, get, I get you. So I get you. Well, Chris, as we start our descent, let's take a finer wine. And this one's from Lisa about American Airlines. I booked a flight and chose a seat. As I scanned my boarding pass, I was handed a slip of paper and told by the agent that I was downgraded and this was my new seat. My seat was directly in front of the bathroom. My one-hour flight turned out to be a six-hour ordeal smelling the stench of the bathroom. When I contacted customer service, they just said, sorry, we'll try to do better next time you fly with us. Chris, is this a fine or a wine? Mm, Lisa, you're talking to somebody who non-revved for almost five years on American Airlines with two little kids sitting in row 33 of the old MD-80s, the very back row of the plane, right in front of the lab. So I'm sorry, this is a wine. You know, Unless you paid for the seat, which it didn't indicate you did, you said you chose the seat. If you paid for the seat, obviously you would do a refund for that seat selection. But there are times when there's a change in equipment and seats have to be reassigned. And uh, this, unfortunately, was one of them. So, you know, you did the right thing by expressing your frustration, but that doesn't mean that uh, every time an airline hears from a guest or a passenger, they're going to make some kind of compensation offer. So, I think that's part of part of flying right now. So um, uh, I'm sorry for your frustration, but it's a wine. I have to agree with you on that, Chris. If she had said, I paid a certain price to sit in an economy plus, and they downgraded to me to an economy seat, I might have been on the fine side of this. But I think you're right. My guess is she had picked a free seat, and she got moved to another free seat. And that's just the way the world works sometimes. It's unfortunate but that's the way it works. Well, as we close down, let me thank you again for joining us. And my shout out this week goes to ITA Airlines, the new airline starting in Italy. Now, for those who haven't heard of ITA, ITA is the rebirth of Alitalia, the company that had so many challenges trying to make a go of it in the airline business under pressure from carriers like Lufthansa and Ryanair and others. ITA is about 70% of the employees come from Alitalia. A lot of the route authorities come from Alitalia, but they say they have a new mission in life. They have a new lease on life. They have a new vision of what the airline will be. They're going to be lower cost. They're going to be smarter. And Italy is such a beautiful country. They deserve to have a good airline. I don't know that I'm too optimistic that ITA is going to make it in a very, very tough environment, but I certainly wish them the best. So my shout out goes to you guys. Make this one work. 
Well, bravo to ITA. Let's leave it at that. My shout out is to Ben, our our respective former boss, Bob Crandall, uh, and a former guest when we first started having guests at the beginning of the year. He joined us very graciously. American Airlines dedicated their new campus, headquarters campus, uh, called the Robert Crandall Campus. This past weekend in Fort Worth, I got to say, this past Saturday was an absolutely perfect day. I didn't get out there, but I did see some of the photos. And so this honors well-deserved. Bob's a legend. I like the fact that the current management team at American uh, thought of honoring him in the appropriate way. So congrats to American for getting their campus opened and Bob for being the namesake for that. And with that, uh, we're out of here until next week. So thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.